I hope everybody had a really good day today. Oh, that's good. That's encouraging. I got to sleep. That made me very, very happy. Right after lunch, I'm like, I got to go sleep. Because I didn't sleep very well last night. So I was thankful for the rest. And so I was glad to go out. And my husband and my daughters went axe throwing. And they... What did you guys do? Archery. They did archery. Apparently, my husband is a very bad axe thrower. And my daughter is a very good axe thrower. So that's concerning, right? <laughs> so, um, but what a fun day. My, both of my sisters are here. My older sister, Gretchen, she lives um, actually next door to me. And my younger sister, Becky, she flew in from Tennessee. And my mom, my two girls, and my um, niece are all here. They're staying up the hill in a house, and we got to have a time of prayer to, together this afternoon. That was my snapshot. This legacy that God has given us. We're going to talk about that tonight. And it's something that I want to make sure, starting as I was praying for tonight, I just feel like the Lord put on my heart, you let them know that they don't compare themselves to other people. Your story is your story, and he redeems your story. And even when, when I come here, I'm so humbled to sit under the leadership of such amazing people. And I sit there and I think, why am I up here teaching? And the Lord's all, don't compare yourself to other people. He has plan and purpose for each and every one of us. Each and every one of us. No matter where you came from. And you're just as important to him. And so that was on my heart to share with you as I was praying over you today. And I am just excited to see what the Lord is going to do because he is breaking new ground. He is breaking new ground this weekend. But this morning we left Naomi telling Ruth in chapter 220, the man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. And it's kind of a weird place to start, to stop. You know, this idea of this man being a redeemer, it's not something we understand in our culture. But that statement, along with the kindness of Boaz, actually starts to melt away the bitterness that Naomi was feeling. And she starts seeing God despite her circumstances. That, and she starts seeing that even when everything is dark, God is still at work. He's still at work on her behalf. And I love, John Piper said, hope helps us to dream. It helps us to think of ways to do good. Have you realized that without hope, there really isn't life? There isn't life. And God gives us hope, even in those dark days, those dark days that he's taken us through. He gives us hope that there's something better, that he has something in those times, that he's healing in us, that he's bringing us through so that we can be stronger, so that we can then comfort those who come after us. That's what ministry is, right? That God comforts us, and then he wants us to use that comfort to comfort others. And I'm so thankful that he uses us. And we see the effect that, that hope has on Naomi because that girl starts making plans again. In Ruth 3.1, Naomi is speaking to Ruth, and she said, My daughter, why should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? And that word rest in the original Hebrew is a settled spot a place, a home, a place of rest. And what she is telling Ruth is that she wants to find her a husband. And this has really been 
her prayer since the beginning. Remember on our first talk together, she urges her daughter-in-laws to stay in Moab. Why? Because she wants them to find a settled spot in their mother's home, in their husband's home, actually. And so what she has wanted from them for day one is that they would find a place of rest in, a, in a, their husband's home. And why is this important? Because they live in a culture of patriarchy. And it was really important. This marriage relationship gave her, gave her daughter-in-law a place of rest. She gave, it, gave her, it gave her both provision and protection. Therefore, she could have that settled spot. And so I have just recently been told by my third child, who is sitting right here, um, that my matchmaking skills are not wanted, nor are they needed. And I just want to tell you, I think it's rude because I'm actually a really good matchmaker. And I have some feathers in my cap, I'm just going to let you know. But I've made two bad calls with her. And so she has sidelined me forever. And I think the punishment is not, you know, does not fit the crime. But recently, my, so last semester, she graduated from college and then she taught in Arizona for a semester. And I really wanted her to come home. She wasn't sure she wanted to come home, you know, that kind of thing. And so I decided, well, what a great motivated, motivator love is, right? That, that'll bring her back. But he, I have to find someone in my town. So I was on the lookout and I was at church and a young man gets up on stage and he's in the worship band and I thought, here we go. This is it. So I text my brother-in-law because he, he volunteers in the worship band. And I'm like, hey, because what I want to know about him is, one, is he single? Because I'm not trying to steal him away from anyone, you know? And then second of all, I need a name. So I asked my brother-in-law. Of course, he knows nothing. He sends me back, I don't know. Well, you're in band with him. How do you not know? And so he texts the worship pastor and then the worship pastor doesn't get back to us for like a week. And then we get a text. And guess what it says? It says, he's single. He's single. I was so excited. You have no idea how excited I was. And also he gave me a name. And I don't know what the worship pastor did to get that information. I don't want to know what he did, actually. And so when... Um, when we found this out, I knew that I had to wait for the best time, like the best time to present it to Natalie. So she comes home for Christmas break. And we're all, it's Christmas Day, and all of us girls are sitting around the island. We always stand around the island. I don't know why. Actually, it's because we are cooking. That's because we're always cooking in Christmas. And so we're all standing around this island, and my family is big and loud, and I'm talking to everybody, but Natalie is standing over here, and I'm talking to my nieces over here. But I have her in my peripheral vision, and I thought, this is the best opportunity. So I said, well, I just recently saw a young man, and he's single, and all the girls, you know, their ears prick up. And I, and Natalie like looks at me and I know she's looking at me. She can, and I'm not going to look at her because she gives like the best death stares ever. <laughs> and so she knows where this is going. I know she knows. But, and they're like, oh, tell us about him. I'm like, well, he's cute. And he probably loves Jesus a lot because he, he's in the worship band. And, um, you know, I just recently found out he's single. And they're like, what's his name? And so I give them their name, his name. 
And one of my nieces said, Auntie Julie, he's in high school. <laughs> so now I've been sidelined forever because I didn't understand that he was in high school. And I really hope that his mom doesn't think I'm a creeper for trying to like text about her son. I'm really hoping that that didn't happen. But my brother-in-law comes up because I haven't told him, hey, keep this super secret. I am not like Naomi. I am not dis, you know, I'm not telling Ruth all of the things that I want or to have happen. Uh, that is not what I'm doing. I'm playing my cards very, very close. And so um, he comes up, hears that we're talking about this, and he spills everything about how I texted him and he texted the worship pastor. And Natalie just went, no more. No more, Julie. And when she uses my name, you know. It's true. Like, it's serious. It's serious. <laughs> and so I am no longer allowed to play matchmaker. But this is not so for Naomi. She has an elaborate plan, an elaborate plan. And unlike my kids, Ruth is going to obey her. She's going to obey her. And so if we read in verses 2 through 5, she is going to show this plan to Ruth. And she says, Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. And what that means is there, there's a threshing floor in each community. And so after harvest, they would take their stalks of grain, they would put it on the threshing floor, they would tread it out. And then they would take a winnowing fork, it looks a lot like a pitchfork, they would throw it up in the air, and the wind would come off of the mountain, and it would blow away the chaff, and the grain would settle. They would continue to do that until it was all harvested until it was all grain. And this would take probably a few days. And so the men would stay with their grain because in a small community like they were in, usually there's only one threshing floor. So this was Boaz's night and Naomi knows it. She knows it's his night. And she says, wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies and then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. And if I ever came up with that plan, my kids would never do it. But in order for us to understand what is happening, because it doesn't make any sense in our culture today, but we have to first understand two words that were really important at that time, and they are the law of leveret marriage, and the other is the kinsman redeemer. And in the Old Testament, we talked about how we are constantly told that God is a covenant God, that Israel is his people and he is their God and he's going to promise them land. And so by the end of the Old Testament, what you come away with is that people and land seem to be very important to God. And because of this, we get these two important words about leveret marriage and kinsman redeemer. And so we're going to start with leveret marriage. And Dr. David Jeremiah explains leveret marriage this way. He says, in the Old Testament, in order to preserve the people of Israel, the brother of a man who had died without a child would marry the deceased man's wife. 
And the first child born in that relationship would perpetuate the name of the man who had died. This was known as leveret marriage. Let me make that a little bit easier for you. If my husband and I did not have any children and he died, it would be the responsibility of his brother to marry me and have an heir that would perpetuate my husband's line. That was super important because the family line in Israel is really important because people are very important to our covenant God. And one of the reasons why is that if you look at the characters in our story, that whole male line has been blotted out. There's no male at all in Elimelech's family. And so the people that went after him, the women that went after him would not receive inheritance. Why? Because there wasn't a male heir. So this was a really important law. It was a very important law, and this is why it, that the, the people, the, the line is always looked at in, uh, in the Jewish religion. They, they take very good care of making sure that they know which line comes from where, and it's this law of leveret marriage. And not only is it important that the family line is preserved, but we also talked about land. Land seems to be very important in God's covenant. And so what happens if a family falls into trouble and they sell their land? Well, Leviticus 25, 23 through 25 says, The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Basically, he is sovereign. They are stewards. It's not their land. They don't get to do with it as they please. It is God's land. And so he says throughout... Throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of land. There's that word again. We've heard it as Boaz is a redeemer, and now we're talking about the redemption of land. In verse 25, it says, If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. So it goes on to talk about many scenarios in which this could happen and how to deal with each scenario. But in the end, they all have to do with redemption. And the Hebrew word for redemption is ga'el, G-A-A-L. And it means to redeem, if you ever wanted to know. That's what it means. It means to redeem. Or a go'el, G-O-E-L, is one who redeems. And to redeem something is a legal term meaning to buy back. That's what it means, to buy back. So the land was to stay in the family. The Lord makes that clear. But if for some reason there wasn't someone in your family that could afford to buy it back, he made provision for this as well. He put that every 50 years there was a year of jubilee and all debts were canceled and all land then returned to the original family line. That's how he dealt with that. And so you realize how important land is. And if you're anything like me, you're wondering, why would land be so important? And I feel like the the Bible project did a great job of explaining it. It says, the land is not simply a geographical backdrop. It acts as a picture of covenant faithfulness as God's people try and often fail to live out their divine calling. The pattern of God giving humans land to which to flourish begins in the Garden of Eden. The human's relationship with God was inextricably linked to the land he gave them. And to live in God's space is to live with God. That's the best part. It all had to do with him dwelling with his people. He walked with them. 
in Eden. He gave them the tabernacle and then the temple so that he could dwell with them in Israel. It was super, super important to God that he dwell with his people. That's why the land was so important. And that's why he set up the kinsman redeemer to be able to buy back that land. So a redeemer or a goel in the Old Testament is usually a senior relative of the family. And they have the power to protect and defend the family in a couple of ways. There's different functions of a goel. One of them is to buy back land we just talked about if, if it was sold outside of the family. The other is to buy back um, servants. They would, if you got into debt, you would go into servitude and a family member could come and buy you back. That would be your goel or your redeemer. There is a third goel. It's called a, the redeemer of blood. And what this person did was it, it, it was, they were there to avenge a murdered family's uh, member's blood. That's, that actually is set up in God's law. And so all of these things are really done to protect and defend the family. That's what God is about. And this is Naomi's plan because Boaz is in the line to be a redeemer. He is a relative that can marry Ruth and continue Elimelech's line. See, Ruth could marry lots of different people, but only Boaz would be able to redeem her and Naomi and their land. And so that's what, she's, what, what her plan is about. Naomi tells Ruth to go and wash and anoint yourself and put on your cloak. And we see these three Hebrew words in succession in another place in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel 12, when after David and Bathsheba's son dies, David immediately gets up. And he washes himself, he anoints himself, and he changes his clothes. It's the exact same succession of words. And you have, to, you have to understand the Bible. Usually when there's connection, there is connection, right? And so Naomi is tasking Ruth to make herself look nice for the proposal. But then I also wonder if it went a step further. I wonder if she was also asking her daughter-in-law to step out of mourning. To step out of mourning just like David was doing in 2 Samuel. And by doing this, Ruth was showing Boaz that she was open to what she was asking for. And sometimes we have to do that. We have to step out of what we know to show that we're open to what God is doing. Amen? And it's not easy. And Ruth does all that her mother-in-law asked and goes to the threshing floor and she waits until Boaz is asleep and she uncovers his feet and lays down. And, she's, and Ruth 3, 8, and 9, it says at midnight when the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for, you're, for you are a redeemer. And really, if this was a movie, this would be the cringy part, right? <laughs> you're like, oh, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. That would be very, very surprising. But Ruth is actually acting within her rights here. She's acting within her rights, but it is a very bold move. Because she is putting herself in a very compromising position. She's laying at the feet of a man by herself on the threshing floor at night, asking him to marry her. It's a very compromising position. And her reputation in the community lay in Boaz's hands. And it's dependent on whether he understands her motive or not. 
He could have easily thought that what she was asking for was sexual in nature and either cast her out, which would have damaged her reputation, or he could have mistreated her. And so Ruth's action would have taken a lot of faith in Boaz's character. And many commentaries I read talked, uh, thought of this as, as being a sexual thing, and, and I don't agree with them at all. I don't agree with them because that's not the character of these two people in the story so far. When we look at the Bible, we have to look at the whole Bible, right? Taking a verse, cherry-picking a verse, is, it, it never does anyone any good. So take the whole Bible. What are these people about? And I think that it was risky, absolutely. It put her in a compromising position, but I don't believe that what Ruth's request was was immoral, Because she was asking him to cover her with his wings, the very thing that Boaz had told her that God did for her when he's talking about her identity. That's what she's asking him to do for her. She's using his words. She was asking for his protection. She's asking for him to redeem her. And I think that this moment on the threshing floor was really a full circle moment for Ruth. It's a full circle moment to do things differently. Because do you remember how Moab started? We talked about that. It was an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. And do you remember the story of Lot and his family as God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and he gives them the chance to flee and he tells them not to turn back, but what does Lot's wife do? She turns back. It doesn't go well with her for her. She turns into a pillar of salt and him and his girls flee to the caves. And so all of a sudden his girls are looking around going, well, we have no one. Our whole life has been destroyed. How are we going to perpetuate our line? See, they were in an impossible situation in their mind. So what do they do? They take control. And they decide to get their father drunk. He has no idea that it's happening. And they conceive a child. Both of them conceive a child. But the one we're talking about is the Moabites. They, they conceive, she conceives the Moab that becomes the Moabite people. And really, this is the stigma for Ruth, right? We've heard about it over and over and over again as we've read the book of Ruth. It's Ruth the Moabite who comes from Moab. Ruth the Moabite. She can't get away from this this stigma. She can't get away from her heritage. It follows her everywhere. It's what she's known by. Ruth the Moabite. It's not an easy life for her. Her future looks bleak, and she doesn't seem to have any way out on her own, just like Lot's daughters. She's in that same position. She has no way out on her own until Naomi brings up God's provision of a redeemer, and then the story changes. See, Ruth waited until Boaz was done eating and drinking. But you have to understand this was not the same as in Genesis 19 when Lot was so drunk he doesn't know what's happening. Boaz was not drunk. And Ruth was not taking control of the situation. She's asking for what she wants and she's leaving it in Boaz's hands. This Moabite was redeeming her heritage. Do you realize that? It's a full circle moment. And she doesn't want to be like her ancestors. 
This Moabite is redeeming her heritage. She's standing up and doing different things differently than Lot's daughters have. And because she stood up and did things differently, the heritage she had been given was different. And, and she passed down a different legacy to her children. And how many of you guys need to do that tonight? Pass down a different legacy. And just because you were born into an ungodly heritage doesn't mean you can't stand up and do things differently. Stand up and redeem what you have been given with Jesus. Amen? Amen. I want you to know it's never easy. I don't want to say it and like, oh yeah, you just stand up and everything's going to be fine. Because what you've been taught, what has been ingrained in you, those sin patterns of year, for years and years, it is not easy to get over. But it is not impossible. It is not impossible and it can be done with Jesus. My parents came to know Jesus when I was eight years old. Before that, we didn't know. We didn't go to church. We didn't know Jesus. And they're first-generation Christians. And, and I'm just going to let you know, I come from a long line of sin and addiction. Anyone else with me? And that's the heritage that my parents were given. That's what they had learned. The family that they grew up in is not the family I grew up in. Why? Because they stood up and they did things differently with Jesus. And because of that, my heritage is different. Because of that, my kids' heritage is different. Because of that, my grandkids' heritage is different. All because two people stood up and said, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not perpetuating this anymore. And I'm standing up and doing life with Jesus. And it's going to make all the difference for generation after generation after generation. Was it easy? No. It wasn't. It wasn't easy. There is an, an, um, an amazing part of that story. Do you know every single one of my parents' family came to know Jesus? That is the legacy, and that is why when I was sitting up in that cabin praying with my family, I was just thanking lo the Lord for the legacy that he has given me. The legacy that I get to pass down to my kids and to my grandkids and to their kids. And it just goes on and on and on because Jesus is a life changer. Amen. He is a life changer. And my question to all of you is who needs to come under the shadow of God's wings tonight? Who needs to do that? See, Boaz is the shadow of a truer and greater redeemer, Jesus. That's what Boaz is. And God sent each and every one of us in this room a redeemer. Every single one of us. And why would he do that? Because we all, like Elimelech, have walked out of the promised land and turned our back on God. Every single one of us. In fact, Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we were all born into sin. And because we were all born into sin, in Romans 6, 23, it says the wages of sin is death. That's what the wages are. And every one of, this, of us with this destruction of sin is spiritually dead. And there's not a thing we can do about it on our own. I don't care if you've heard that if you work hard enough, if you pray to whatever, if you do whatever, if it is on your own, you can't get to heaven without Jesus. 
You just can't. You can't do it. But Naomi teaches Ruth that God provided for them by giving them what? A redeemer. A redeemer. And God did the same for us. God did the same for us. And remember, God is a covenant-keeping God, and he loves you, and he wants to give you an inheritance of eternal life in heaven. And he wants you to be spiritually alive. So he sent his son to buy you back, to buy me back from death. But our Redeemer had to pay the redemption price, just like we're going to see that Boaz has to pay the redemption price for Naomi and Ruth. But see, our redemption price was really high because the wages of sin is death and that we know that he has to pay with his life. Jesus had to die, shed his perfect blood on the cross and rise again so that whomever asked him to redeem them, he would. He would redeem them. He would cover them with his righteousness. He would forgive them their sin and give them new life by his spirit. See, with Jesus, we have a new heritage. We, we have a future and a, legacy, a new legacy to pass down. But we can't do it without Jesus. If you are here tonight and you want Jesus to be your redeemer... I want you to know that we're going to have a moment after I'm done here tonight in which Megan comes and she will explain all of that to you. But I want you to know that it is the most important decision that you will ever make in your life to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And he is the one that can change your legacy. He can change it. Nothing else can. But he can. But I also want to stand, I want to talk to a group of women here tonight that needs to stand up and they want, because they want to say, I want to do things differently than what I've been given. Is there anyone here tonight? Please stand up. If you're here tonight, thank you. If you're here tonight and you're like, I want to do things differently than the heritage I've been given, guess what? God does that for you. And tonight you're making a stand saying, we're done with the old. We're done with it. There is freedom. There is freedom for you. And just like my parents, let it be an example to you that when there's generation after generation after generation of all of your families, that they stand and can stand up on a stage and say, because they stood up, I'm here today. It is brave. And it is hard, but you can do it with Jesus. I also want, to, I want you guys to stay standing. I want to, I want to talk to the, the people in this room that maybe were given a great heritage, but tonight you're saying, I want to continue to pass down that heritage to the next generation. I want to be a life that is passed down, that Jesus is the most important thing in my life so that my grandkids see it, my kids see it, my great-grandkids see it. Please stand up. I want you to know I'm standing with you. I'm standing with you. Praise God. We want to be women that stand up for a new legacy. We want to be women that stand up for truth in a world that doesn't want to hear it. But we are intentionally saying, I want to stand on the truth of Jesus. Amen? Amen. And I want to pray for us tonight.
I want to pray a blessing over all of us, but really fast, I want you to look around and see this. This is the harvest. This is the harvest coming to know Jesus for the first time, standing up and saying, I want to change my life with Jesus, and standing up and saying, I want to continue a godly legacy. This is the harvest. I love it. We're on a threshing floor tonight, amen? We're on a threshing floor. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you for these women, all of these women who have stood up and said, we want you. We want you. I just pray blessing upon them. I pray that you would just make them bold and courageous in their faith. This world needs it. This world desperately needs you. And I thank you that this is a ripple effect for generations after generations after generations because there's something that you do in families when people stand up and do the hard things of faith. There's something so eternal that happens. And I thank you for these women that would stand up and continue the hard work of sanctification, Lord. It's not easy. But we thank you that with you, you do all things with us, that, you, that nothing is impossible for you. We love you, Jesus, and we give you tonight and help us to go back down that mountain and, Lord, help lives to be changed because we stood up and said yes tonight. In your most precious and amazing name, amen.